0: And after that hearing, I called David on the phone. I didn't know him. I just called him up on the phone and said, Listen, I was at the uh, uh, consumer affairs. Here. He wasn't there. And I said, I'd love to talk to you about what's going on down here because I think it's really unfair what they're trying to do to you. So he said, Well, look, um, why don't you come down and you know, we'll have some coffee or have some lunch or whatever. So I go down to Prince Street and I waited for David for like 45 minutes, (laughs) just sitting there. (laughs) And he came in, and I'll never forget this. He came in and walked right past me because he had something on his mind. He went, took care of whatever business he had to take care of, and then came back in and said, okay, well, you know, let's go and sit down and talk. And from there, we developed a friendship that led to my working for him at the New York Record Pool. That's right which was, you know, in full fly. I think they had at that point 250 DJs that were members of the pool. And David and I got to be close to the point that we used to go, and this was, you know, I absolutely loved this about him. We would go on a weeknight and just sit in the middle of the dance floor, and he would play all of this really fantastic non-dance music. He would play the drummers of Burundi. He would play the Kodo drummers of Japan. He played Music for Airports by Brian Eno, which came out, I think in 78, somewhere around there. David was into all of this stuff and I soaked it up like a sponge, (laughs) I gotta be honest with you, because it was just all so wonderful. As a matter of fact, I went, after I first heard the Kodo drummers on his sound system, I actually went to see them perform at the city center on 55th Street. And it was that kind of evolution but you know, you know and, and this is pre-Garage Day, but even then, and even after I got to be friendly with Larry, um, nobody influenced my musical taste other than my brother as much as David. David was the first person to tell me never use noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> as an example, he didn't believe in noise-canceling headphones. He said that that uh, the electric, you know, the electronics involved in noise-canceling made the sound worse. That was his absolute thing he would not touch anything digital he didn't care what it was i mean and people would walk in and, and offer him all kinds of things the amazing thing to me about david is that he could have at any point in the lost career or the lost tenure which is now over 50 years he could have done things a little bit differently, a little bit different and made a fortune and I mean made a fortune. He never made a dime off the record pool. No. Uh, he lost money on the record pool, but he was making enough money at the loft at the time. And I mean, this is a guy, and uh, you know, I heard this story from more than one person, otherwise I wouldn't have believed it. David once, when he was on on uh, Broadway, took the money he had made on a Saturday and put it out with the garbage. Because he had gotten into this (laughs) whole thing about not being, uh, uh, I guess, materialistic, for want of a better term. And that was David. You know, we used to have conversations, uh, Lenny, it was amazing to me. Uh, He would call me and he'd say, Mark, I said, David, Mark, David, Mark, we would go like that for two minutes (laughs) before we'd actually start a conversation. But he was a wonderful person. He was a generous person. We used to go every now and then when I was working at the pool. He would take us to dinner at this restaurant called Rocco's, where he was friendly with the owners, and we had some of the most wonderful. I mean, he would drop two hundred and fifty bucks in nineteen seventy-seven money uh, at Rocco's, taking you know six, seven of us out to dinner. That's how generous he was. Um, which saddened me greatly because as he got older and had you know, money problems, not many people were willing to step up and help him financially. I wasn't in a position to, but there were other people who were, who didn't really step up. But anyway, I, I digress. Um I started working at the New York Record Pool during that summer of 1977.
1: But was he, at that time, was he wealthy?
0: David was never technically wealthy. He didn't, look, he didn't look at the accumulation of money as being important to him. He liked the roof over his head. He liked to be comfortable. But he would never have characterized himself as wealthy, just like he would never have characterized himself as a DJ. David hated the term disc jockey, hated it. He was a party host. And the loft was not a club. It was not a disco. He hated that term, too. As a matter of fact, we were in a staff meeting one time and somebody mentioned, you know, well, you know if, if David just wanted to do something with this club. And Eddie Waddell, who was his chief lieutenant back then, went crazy. Said, Don't you dare call this place the, the a club. This is not a club. This is not a disco. The loft is an idea. I never forgot that never forgot it. Um, But then David really got tired of the hassles he was having from the membership of the record pool. What you gotta understand, Lenny, is that David was really, really fixated on making sure that the disc jockeys had proper documentation of their work. So in other words, they had to get a letter from their employer Stamped with a raised corporate seal, just any old letter you wouldn't—he would send you away. And a lot of people used to get like really frustrated with that, but it was David's way of trying to make sure that the record company saw the pool as something valuable. Because before the record pool, um, people used to just like go up to different record companies. And if you knew the guy, you know, one of the promotion guys, you might get records. Might get records. And the ones that were really popular, Francis, Stephen, of people like that, they would go up there and they would be able to get records. And there were other people who were less well-known that just were out of luck, completely out of luck. Now, around 1977, going into 1978, David... Kind of, sort of got upset with a few things that were going on at the pool. I wasn't involved in any of that. I was just going in every day and doing the work and, put, you know, putting the new stuff up or whatever. Well, I went toward Christmas of 77. I went down thinking I was going to work a couple days in a row. And the place was locked up tight as a drum. And I'm like, no, what, what the hell's going on here? Nothing. No communication from David. I would call David, call him, call him, whatever, stick notes under the door, nothing. And I came to the conclusion at that point that the pool had ceased to function, which it had. Nobody could come pick up records. There were guys coming, trying to come get records. And they were standing there looking at me like, well, what do you mean? (laughs) You can't get any records. You're the person that gives us the records. How come you can't get in to get? I said, he's locked the doors. So Judy Weinstein, who I had met earlier because she worked at the pool before I did, and she and I were got to be friendly. She had an apartment on Thompson Street uh, in, I guess, the, the, the cusp of the village in Little Italy. And uh, there were two DJs, David and Joe ickowitz They were twins, Right. They came to Judy first and then me and said, look, the pool doesn't seem to be operating. What was operating at that time was IDRC. Eddie Rivera's pool was still going strong. I think he may have changed the name of it by then. But uh, they said, why don't you guys start a pool? And at first it's like, what are you talking about? Starting? Come on, you got the relationship with the BVs, you got the with So Judy had a meeting with me, Larry, my friend Hank Williams, dear close friend of mine, uh, and the Influence Point. And that's where For the Record was born. And uh, it was February 2nd, 1978, For the Record opened up. Uh, and, you know, we, we use a lot of the same procedures that David used because they were they made perfect sense. Uh, you had to have a corporate seal. We didn't want to be as large as the New York pool. We put a cap on on for the record of one hundred twenty five members.
1: Can I can I pause you for a second? Sure. So that maybe you can clarify this. Some people that said Judy had she was secretary of Mancuso's pool. Is that correct? At the time, New York, was she secretary of the loft?
0: She, see, there's a difference between being Secretary of the Loft and being Secretary of the Pool. Was she, which part was she? She was Secretary of the Pool. Of the Pool. There was no Secretary of the Loft.
1: Okay, so the second question is, because you'll remember you were right there. Some people had said that Mancuso always was angry that she took the list, so-called list of the pool members, and created the pool, in essence robbing the New York record pool from its glory and creating for the record is that what sure. happened? okay so clarify that thank you that's what I want you
0: know, you- um the thing was uh, I don't know about the list business what happened when we made the decision to start the pool start for the record we just talked to uh, groups of different DJs we didn't steal anybody's list. we knew who they were and we told them listen we're trying to start a pool we could not have accommodated all the members of the New York record pool. We ended up with half as many members as the New York pool had. And that was by choice, not, not, you know, we were in a relatively small space on 22nd Street and we didn't want to have, because we thought uh, the record pool was unwieldy that way. And, you know, people constantly hassled David. You know, they'd have these meetings and they would just go after him about this and go after him about that. And my friend wanted to become a member, but he didn't have a corporate seal, blah, 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 blah. We wanted to make it streamlined and make it simple. And, and you got to realize, like, we Hank and I didn't stick around that long because we were working full time at the radio station. Both of us were. So, you know, we were around to get started, but essentially we bowed out and it was Judy's thing. After that, you know what I mean? Um, but no, if David, what happened was <laughs> David did get upset when he heard that For the Record had started. Um, and what he did, I think, at that time was try and restart the New York record pool. Oh, I was okay. All right, but that wasn't going to work for him. He was pissed off at me, he didn't speak to me for a while about that. Because he thought I was colluding with Judy. But i it wasn't really about that. We weren't the ones that, you know, the the, the seed of the idea to start a pool came from the Ickowitz twins, not from us.
1: Well, what was the reason of, of him stopping and ceasing the business at that point?
0: He, first of all, he was losing money. He wasn't making any money. He never thought that the membership uh, uh properly appreciated what he did for the pool, he gave that pool space. He gave that pool, you know, uh, uh, an infrastructure. You know, the the little slots for the records on it. David paid for all of that stuff, and he never thought that the membership of the pool properly appreciated what he did. So he just shut
1: it down, <laughs> and, and that was David's way. That's it. We're done. And that. Yeah. He didn't, he, you know, a he didn't say meeting. He didn't mention it to you. He just said, nah, "Nope,
0: no more." He that's said, it. "No, that's it." And he he told Tim Lawrence further down the road because in his book he mentions this time. He said he wished he could have done it more gracefully, but he was just done with it. And you know, we got started with for the record, uh, and he really did. He he was upset. I know he was upset. And he tried to start the New York record pool again. But it was it was like putting toothpaste back in the tube at that point. There had been too many DJs who weren't able to get records during that. Ho- and this was during the holiday period. You know, he stopped opening up the pool right around Christmas 77. And we started for the record in February 78. But that was a, a crucial time. You know, the, especially uh, uh, December. That was a time that the record companies used to put out a lot of product. And, you know, people felt they had missed out. So when he tried to do the record pull over, you know, try trying to necessitate the New York pool, it just didn't work. So what he ended up doing, which I think was a very smart thing on his part, was just concentrating on the law. And remember and, you know, he and I eventually started speaking again and we became friends again. And I told anybody who would listen, Never, ever bet against David Mancuso. Never. Because people thought that, you know, the loft was going to do this, and this was going to happen, and that was going to happen, and the pool dying was going to hurt the loft. Don't bet on any of that. David will keep the loft, the loft, and it will always be a wonderful, wonderful place. You know, the clipshorns that he had are still in use. 50 years later, he understood sound better than anybody I've ever met. And it's not like he was a learned guy. He didn't go to school for it or whatever. There were certain books and, and certain things that he uh, read that kind of grounded him as far as sound. is. Sound. I met Mark Levinson at the law because he bought, I forgot how many, $100,000 worth of Mark stuff. So, you know, David invited him down. I happened to be there that day. And, I mean, Mark Levinson was absolutely captivated by David's dedication to the sound of music. It was a very rare thing. So, anyway, um, during this same period, I met Larry. I met Larry through a very close friend, a godfather to my daughter, a guy named Nathan Bush, who was uh, in charge of... The refreshment at the law. So uh, he introduced me to Larry. And at that point, they were transitioning from, was it Reed Street? Or so they were transitioning to the garage. Because wherever they were at, it was like a, a fire hazard or something. I, I had never gone there. So um, Larry invited me to a party he gave. Uh, in that space when it was completely raw space. As a matter of fact, Judy was going to move to Florida. And this was supposed to be her going away party. Oh, really? Yeah. And Larry had uh, these sawhorses and had put wood on top of the sawhorses, set up the sound system, and everybody else was dancing on the dance floor, which was the floor at that point. It It was a great party, though and you know eventually uh, nathan told me he was moving from the loft to do the refreshments at the garage so i said okay let's, let's see how this turns out and I, I mean it was a gigantic space i mean I, you know it was bigger than the loft uh and i knew that that larry uh, had some of the same sonic principles as david but i guess bigger for want of a better term he wanted A big sound. He wanted something that was gonna, you know, make your chest thump. And you know, they set the garage up. And the first night, which was I think in February '78, it might have been the same around the same time period that for the record opened. There was a snowstorm, and not all the equipment got there in time. And it was interesting because that was a point at which I started to understand that there was a difference among gay people between black gay people and white gay people. And white gay people didn't always like to party with black gay people. And they really didn't care that much for black straight people because black straight people could on occasion be homophobic. So you had this situation where, you know, the that club, the, the white gay crowd, all right, the crowd that was at the time going to Flamingo and going to 12 West and going to some of these other places, people out on Fire Island and all, that was who Michael Brody, who owned the garage, that was who he wanted to appeal to. Those were his friends. He wanted those folks to come to the garage.
1: As they called them, Snow Queens.
0: Snow Queens, yeah. The problem was that after that first you know, those, <laughs> that crowd uh, didn't give you a lot of slack. And when it didn't work that first night, some of them never came
1: back. No, they said they were going to stay right where they need to stay at 12 Yeah. Months.
0: Yep, absolutely. I, I mean, again, we knew uh, Richie Rivera and all these different people that played at these different clubs. Yep. <laughs> so um Michael really had to because the space was so big and he had to make a nut uh he you know he started opening it up first to black gay people and then eventually friday nights opened up to black straight people which he w- he was not really all that much into that at the time but the segregation of the nights drove people nuts because it was like black people on Friday, white people on Saturday. And <laughs> by the way, you know, the, the white crowd was relatively small compared to the black crowd. The black crowd went in there and heard that sound system and told all their friends. So you couldn't get in there on a Friday night. Saturdays, not so much. And, and part of that was because you had all these options. You had the 12 West. You had the Flamingo. You had uh, the gallery for the amount of time it was open before Nikki closed it. So you had all of those scenes and, you know, people didn't necessarily think that the garage, at least the, the, the white gay crowd, it wasn't theirs. It wasn't something that they bonded with. And, and it, I think that bothered Michael through the entire time the garage was open. I think it really kind of, kind of sort of bugged him out. But again, you know, while all this was going on in my life, I was also developing some shops as far as radio. And uh, I, I began doing more and more interviews, got to know a bunch of really, really great people. Uh, Wayne Barrett, who wrote for The Village Voice, Tom Robin, all these folks. And that culminated, I know I'm jumping forward here a little bit, but in 1991, I had the privilege of interviewing Nelson Mandela. And that was the pinnacle. I
1: okay. Must have been.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it, it's funny because, you know, you meet the man and you shake his hand. He had just gotten, to, he was coming to New York after having been in prison for 27 years. And the first thing he wants to know about is boxing. And I said, boxing? And it, it turned out I had done some research. He was a boxer before he got involved in activist politics. And he kept asking anybody he would see. Because it was before, it was after Buster Douglas had knocked out Mike Tyson. And they were talking about a rematch. And he kept asking everybody in that accent of his, do you think Mike Tyson will beat Buster Douglas in the rematch? (laughs) Everybody. I mean, the people that were working in the hotel, the whole nine yards. But it was an amazing experience for me. Because he told me. At the time, which I wasn't sure if he was just hyping or whatever, he said, apartheid will be dead in less than four years. And it took three, (laughs) as it turned out. So he was right. Yeah, he was absolutely right. And I mean, he didn't say that because he thought he was going to end up being president of the country. He just knew that apartheid had run its course. And that was that. So, you know, again, I was. Kind of sort of juggling that thing. You know, interviewing people. I covered the Democratic and Republican conventions every year from 1976 to 2008. Um, and by the way, the free food that they had in 1976 had vanished by <laughs> 2008. That's for sure. For the oh, press, course. anyway. Yeah. So, like, every-
1: like everything.
0: Like yeah, everything. But it was a time for me where I was to an extent running around like a chicken with my head cut off but if we go backwards to that winter of 1979 1980, um and, and I don't tell that many people this but I marched for many years in drum and bugle corps around the uh New York area and I marched with a drum corps from Long Island called the Sunrisers and we had won the national championship in 1978 and in 1979 This guy came from another, from a very good junior car called the Bridgman. And he and I got to be close because we both lived in the Bronx and had to travel out to Long Island three days a week. His name was Joey Young. And Joey back then, I mean, I I hope I'm not speaking out of school. Joey was crazy back then. (laughs) I mean, we used to do some stuff, and I'm not going to get into it because he'll yell and scream at me for it. But I mean, we, we had a whole lot of fun. So one night, I said to him, hey, listen, man, uh, you want to come to this club with me? He said, yeah, well, w- w- what kind of club are you talking about? And I said, it's, it's a place called the Paradise Garage. It's got the greatest sound system you'll ever want to hear. And that was it for him. He, he, You know, even if he was homophobic, the bottom line was he wanted to hear that sound system. Uh, very much so. And as far as he's concerned, the rest was history. You know, he ended up being head of security. He ended up learning how to play from Larry and from David DePino, And now, just the other day, he did the uh, Larry LeVan boat ride. You know, so there's a lot of things uh, that went on that uh, I guess I can say I was a a bit of a part of. Um, I don't Generally speaking, my wife always yells at me about this, but I generally speaking don't talk about myself much.
1: Well, you need to. That's why we have you here. (laughs) Documented. This is why I told Karen, if she's out there, I said, Karen, we're going to get Mark Riley. She says, okay. I said, you'll understand who Mark Riley is when he tells a story. (laughs) (laughs) Because people need to know that I know the story, but we need to hear the story from the man himself. And I'm glad you're here. And I yeah, I'm too glad
0: there. to be doing this. It
1: hasn't stopped because I'm going, wow, because I'm actually seeing the picture. Because I remember hearing, you want to hear something that's got bass in your face, highs in your eyes? You've never partied like you went to the garage, and I went, what's that? And I know that feeling. You can go, and when you walk in Sodom and Gomorrah, dang, no you're yeah. back. It's, it's like everybody says, baptism by fire.
0: Yeah, baptism by fire. And, and as I, I told you before we came on, I gave Joey, <coughs> excuse me, the same lecture that I was given. What
1: you telling? So, so to reenact the story for us, so, to, the, the people, so they can hear that.
0: You know? Well, I, I mean, I said to him, "Listen, Joey, this is because the night I was taking him, I think was a Saturday." So this is, in its heart of hearts, it's a gay club. Now I know you. Okay. Know, this is a guy from South Bronx. Your <laughs> yeah, you know so. But he, he, I was surprised in a way because he didn't, uh, which he used to back in the day, you know, he, he could be like really sarcastic about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but I, when I said to him, listen, man, if you don't like gay people or if there's a problem with your homophobia, go to hell home. I asked you to come. to get <laughs> it. And no, man, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll go. I'll go check it out.
1: I still wasn't sure. Um, but that he, had
0: right, That fear in you,
1: right. you taking him there going, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but
0: yeah, exactly. I don't know how this is going to turn out. Um, you know, I uh, introduced him to a few people. I introduced him to Nathan. Although Nathan didn't stay at the garage very long because when, when Michael divided the nights between black and white, Nathan left, he thought that was like a really, really bad thing. Now, a lot of people called Michael a racist for doing it. I never thought Michael was a racist. I understood why he was doing it. I just didn't think it was smart, and I didn't think it was good for business. Right. I think he could have gotten black gay people and white gay people to party together, but it it didn't happen until much later. You know, it was, uh, even up until the end, uh, I just... You would say that from the mid 80s on, the garage was Friday night with straight black people, and Saturday night turned out to be straight black, um, gay black people. Um wasn't as crowded on Saturday as it used to be on Friday, but it was, you know, it was a serious, serious party. Um and at one time, I, I don't know how long this lasted, but at one time they used to put a limit on the number of women that you could bring in with you. To the garage. You know, not on Friday, but on Saturday. They wanted to keep a gay aesthetic. Which I can understand. You know, they wanted something. Uh again, Stonewall was less than a decade old at that point. And you know, people felt liberated and people felt like they wanted to party among their own. I understand that. Don't necessarily agree with it, but I understood why Michael did what he did. Eventually, it turned out okay. You know, Larry, uh, at one point, was very nervous about whether or not Michael was going to replace him on Saturdays because they thought, he thought, and had gotten complaints about Larry from some of the white gay people that came on Saturdays. Oh, this isn't our kind of music. It's not this. It's not that. And again, uh, by then you had the saint and a couple of other large white gay spaces. Which is why the garage garage had to adapt or die. They could have gotten away with just doing, you know, a straight Friday and a straight Saturday. But that's not what Michael wanted to do. He wanted to have uh, a, a gay night. And it turned out that it was a largely black gay night. And he also, you know, you had people, you know, Keith Herring used to come there and hang out. Sylvester used to come there and hang out. I interviewed Sylvester once. Uh, what an extraordinary mind that guy had. He was, by the way, an expert on the blues. He could take you back to W.C. Handy <laughs> at the end of the 19th century and take you straight through the 20th century as far as blues musicians were concerned.
1: Wow. Yeah. I Most
0: know people didn't know that about him. No, I didn't no, know that. But But he was a regular there. Everybody knows Grace Jones was a regular there.
1: Always. Always saw her there
0: yeah and you know you had the different acts that came you know Shaka. i'm one one uh artist liz torres you remember her
1: sure from chicago master c and j
0: yeah yeah well liz came in there and turned that place
1: out upside down is better than word
0: yeah yeah and i mean there were others uh you know, Eddie Murphy went there, Diana Ross went there, and not there to perform, just there to dance. And nobody cared. No, nobody cared. And see, that was a different, a slightly different twist to the loft. Because the loft at one time used to get, you know, Calvin Klein and this one and that one. But the thing about the loft was, if you didn't have a membership, or if you were not a guest of a member, it didn't matter if you were our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you couldn't get in.
1: I'm getting in tonight. Yeah,
0: I mean that—that that was how David ran things. Well, the garage had a little bit more slack than that. So did, by the way, did the gallery? The gallery used to be, you know, somewhat somewhat exclusive, but they used to get folks that would come down there. And if uh, Robin Lord, who worked the door, didn't know who they were, uh, there might there was a story that was in Tim Tim Lawrence's book about David Bowie and Mick Jagger coming down there, and. Robin Lord just said, no, no, if you're not a member, you can't come in. Sorry. Nope, you can't come in. Sorry. And finally somebody said, Robin, that's Mick Jack and <laughs> David Bowie. <laughs> and suddenly she was scrawled out a membership card and they both got in Um, But, it, you know, it, it was uh, a scene I really thought, I know it was for me, but I think for a lot of people, it was about. Freedom. It was about the freedom to dance the way you wanted, to be who you were. Uh, and you know, at that time, you know, a lot of these people were going to work five days a week and being something other than who they truly were, their true self. And these places, the uh, loft in the garage were kind of like, you know, my my wife calls me a snob because those are the two places. Without which, I mean, I, I would go to other parties or go to other spaces and it would be like, eh, you know, eh. But these places were places where you could feel free, where you could feel like, you know, there's no, I mean, obviously, ridiculous behavior wasn't tolerated, but you could feel like you could be who you were. And that was, I think, for me anyway, the most important thing. And a lot of other people, I mean, i knew people who used, who went to the garage and the law and they said listen uh, you know i got to be 15 16 years old and my father found out i was gay and he threw me out of the house and you know you end up staying with friends you end up staying here or there were networks of of you know gay young people that came together but the one place they could go Was to the garage or the loft. And they could feel free. They could feel vindicated. They could not be judged. Right. Yeah. And when your parents judge you. That's a hell of a thing. I mean, I was fortunate. My parents never judged me on that level. But when your parents, the people that gave you life. Say to you, well, if you're going to do that, you can't be a part of this family anymore. I can't imagine. How that damaged some of the people that it happened to. But they came together and they went to these different places. And that's why these places were, on the one hand, so intense, but on the other hand, so emotionally satisfying for people. I mean, look, I went to the loft one night and danced with a woman I had never seen before in my life. Didn't see her before, didn't see her since. Danced with her for two and a half straight hours. Course, we were passing certain things back and forth. <laughs> but I mean, and never said a word. And the thing was, after every song David played, we were getting ready to like separate we go our separate way. But then he played something, we'd go right back to dance. And that happened for two and a half straight hours. One of the high points in my life, other than interviewing Nelson Mandela, was one night on Prince Street, David got sick and he calls me up and says, you know, because I was at Prince Street he said, listen, uh, can you play records till I feel better and then I'll come in and I'm like excuse me? <laughs> what?' He said, yeah, just, just play some records, man, you know the music and, you know, I played some stuff and then I decided to play I Got It by Gloria Spencer <coughs> A classic, classic song. The first three notes of that song, people went nuts. And I thought to myself, Jesus, I've died and gone to heaven. (laughs) I've never seen anything like this before. And people are jumping and screaming and jumping and screaming. And toward the end of the song, I turned around and there was David. So that was my last song playing at the loft, but it was also... Uh, just so enjoyable to see a crowd react to you like that. And I later, you know, you look back on it now and you understand that people like David, people like Larry, people like Nikki, they all had this happen to them night after night after night. T Scott, Jellybean, all of these different DJs. And I don't know. I There's something now. I got to tell you, Lenny, there's something now among the younger DJs, and I hate to say this because I don't want to appear as though I'm dogging them, comparing them to other people, to an older aesthetic. Um, but it's almost like these some of these DJs, not all of them, but some of them are like close and play. Remember them close and play record players they used to have back in the day? It's like anybody can be a DJ. You put up a, a, a a console, you throw a couple of CDs on, and you throw a little of this, you throw a little of that, and you know, you beat mix to the best of your ability, and, and that's more or less that. And the the idea that you can draw inspiration as a DJ, as a musical host, as David used to call himself. Uh, that you could draw inspiration from the crowd and play music that gives back to that crowd. And causes them, <laughs> there used to be this saying uh, at the of racing to the ceiling. Because people, that's how it was for people. It was just such an experience. Mm. And it was a communal experience. It wasn't like the DJ was playing and you were reacting. I know it was like that to an extent with Larry, but... Even Larry, Larry fed off what the crowd was into, except when he played something that he wanted the crowd to get into, and they wouldn't. Which used to happen every now and then. You know, he would play the people sat down on the floor a couple times (laughs) and wouldn't dance because Larry. But Larry would play a song and play a song and play a song and find there were a couple of songs that became iconic pieces of music in the garage. That at first the crowd hated it, the crowd wouldn't wouldn't react to it. But Larry and he got, I'll tell you what, he got that from David Rodriguez, rest his soul. You remember David?
1: Yes, from the limelight. Yes. It yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. David was a guy who would play something until the crowd heard what he heard, and that Larry got that from him, directly from him.
1: Well, here's the thing, everyone, and you of course. Mark, it takes a certain person to drive that record home. You know, you got to have a lot of DJs after the first time, and you know this would have never played it again if they saw their room clear out. Yeah. He purposely did that. He would play the record. Maybe they sit down or run to the movie cinema room or whatever they would do. Get off the floor, go chit-chat. The room. <laughs> I ain't feeling that record. You know how people are. I ain't feeling that. She's tired. Yeah. Whatever she's playing some crap now, whatever, and he would then bring you back and kill you for three, four records, and yeah. play it again, and, and play it would again. then walk off the floor again. Yeah, right. And he would then do it again, smash you to it to a point like you said, dance, go nuts, play the record again. By yeah. the sixth time you're dancing to that record, by the eighth time you're now singing that record, and the whole weekend in New York, knows about the record.
0: Oh, yeah. They all trooped over to Vinyl Mania to buy the record.
1: That's the power of a DJ. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know where his first manifest was downstairs on 42nd.
1: Downstairs,
0: right? Did you know Benji? Yes. All right. Benji was an amazing person because you could walk into downstairs and you could say, if you knew him well, you could say, hey, man, I heard this song. It goes, and he'd know exactly what it was. Yeah, right. Oh my. Yeah, and he would pick out, for people he knew really well, he would pick out, like, 10 45s that he wanted you to hear. And he'd play them back to back to back. And I guarantee you, out of those 1045s, you would buy nine of them. Because that's how exquisite Benji's taste was. But Larry, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess... Most people don't know this story because it, it happened kind of like behind the scenes. Larry, for a brief period of time, was doing live mixes on BLS, mm-hmm. live from the floor of the I mean, from his console at the garage, right? So one night, and this is why it wasn't a very long tenure, one night uh, he decides to play Why'd You Do It by Marianne Faithful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I so what that record does, and how explicit. You don't. Be. People don't know this record. It's so explicit. It's a great song. I mean, it really it's was a great song. So explicit. Go ahead. Well, he put it on,
0: and it turned out that the vice chairman of the radio station was coming home late that night and had BLS on and heard this song, and went crazy. He wanted everybody fired. <laughs> yes. He wanted to fire Frankie Crocker over because Frankie was the one that put Larry on. He didn't want to hear about Larry ever doing anything on BLS again. I mean, he just was go because that was how he was. He was a judge. And Judge Sutton just really went off because he was with his wife. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. When, when it got to the point where she said, get stoned, what was it? Get a hold of your cock and get stoned on my
1: ass. That was it. <laughs> that was pretty much. It. Come on, everyone is fired. fired. yeah, yeah. Well, everybody's going to. I can imagine. When,
0: oh my god. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was quite the night. I don't even know if Larry knew how how upset he was about that because Larry, it never dawned on him he was playing a set at the club. I I, I had seen Larry do some utterly amazing things. Um, I've interviewed Eddie Grant several times over the years, and I was close to a guy who was his cousin, right? So Eddie comes to the garage one night, and they take him up into the booth. And Larry turns around, takes one look at Eddie, and proceeds to mix a 40-minute... Mix of every great song Eddie Grant ever made without, you know, without even thinking about it. It was just like going over here, going over here, living on the front lines. And Eddie was dumbfounded. Eddie was, it was utterly dumbfounded. too. <laughs> yeah, but, well, because nobody knew Eddie was coming. So it wasn't like Larry had time to prepare. He just looked up, saw Eddie, and bam, you know. Uh, And I mean seamless, seamless stuff. And you know, uh, people have said before, and it's true. Larry used to have off nights when he would suck. You know, if his, you know, he had a tooth extraction or if he had a fight with Michael or whatever. There were certain nights he was, how best to put this, less than great. But there was nobody else like Larry when it came to understanding music. Now, Frankie Knuckles. Uh, And Frankie and Larry were close from when they were in high school together. Um, Frankie also became a good friend of mine. And, you know, Frankie had a a slightly different aesthetic than Larry. He wasn't quite as adventurous in terms of the stuff. He liked melodic stuff. You know, he really liked melodic R&B stuff, you know. Where Larry, Larry played Clash, <laughs> Larry put on just about anything. So would David. I think Larry got that from David, and both of them cut their teeth with Nicky Siano. Nicky Siano was the one that started them. Both Larry and uh, Frankie gave him gig, gave, gave him slots, <coughs> and I think eventually they both ended up at the Continental Baths. That's right. Um, you know, and and these were. Places that were constantly evolving, which I think was part of it, their attraction. And you got to realize too, Lenny, there were a lot of other clubs in New York at the time. There were straight up black, straight clubs Leviticus, Justine's, oh God, Nell, uh, God. That was,
1: was later. It? That was later. But yeah, was- well, no, this, this was in the
0: early mid 70s. It was a group of guys called the Best of Friends. And um, one of them was Vaughn Harper, who I worked with at the radio station.
1: WBLS, everybody, remember Vaughn Harper?
0: Yeah, yeah. well, he was part of the Best of Friends that started all these places, Alexander the Great and and places like that. And what was significant for people back then, they weren't to my taste. None of these places, I, I went to them a few times, but they weren't my heart. My heart was the garage, my heart was the law. But what they did do was take an uptown aesthetic, a Brooklyn aesthetic, and bring it to midtown Manhattan. For a long time, I don't know black people that were able to run clubs in midtown Manhattan. That was unheard of in the early, mid-1970s. And the best of friends broke that mold. Mm. You know? <coughs> they. Uh, it's really funny. Um, one time... I don't know if it was frankly, but somebody brought the staff of BLS to the garage. It was on the, it was, the, the club wasn't open. They just came to see the space. And I happened to be up in the booth when they showed right? Now, none of them knew I even went to the garage because I didn't broadcast it to anybody. You know, because in those days, if, if you went to the garage, they automatically assumed you were gay, you know? Oh, you go to a garage? Are
1: you gay? I so said, you don't have enough exactly. money to pay a garage if I'm gay. That's correct. That's exactly the first thing you heard. Yeah. The yeah. first thing you heard. What so, you heard you must be gay. Yeah, exactly. You must be gay, not your, are you gay. You must be gay. No,
0: you must be gay. <laughs> <clears throat> so, you know, they're all on the dance floor looking around in awe. And Larry put on a little bit of music or whatever. And I came downstairs and these people's eyes got as wide as saucers. What the hell are you doing here? I said, This is where I hang out, man. You 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 go here? Yes, I go here. This is where I hang out. And you know, my thing was uh not to really say to anybody, this is what my business is. You know what I'm saying? I'm not talking about business business. I'm just talking about, I, I did not let people deep enough into me to know my business. And the garage and the loft, that was a completely separate scene from the radio station I worked in, even though <clears throat> they were companion situations. And Frankie used to go to the garage every Saturday for a good long stretch. Actually, every Friday and Saturday in, in many cases. Um, but it was still you know, this is my thing. I don't need anybody to comment on it. I don't need anybody to critique it. This is what I do.
1: That's right.
0: You know, uh, and uh, there was, I think, among a lot of people, a defiance about how people viewed the garage.
1: And I want to say this to you. You had a different visual aspect of it all because... You are already amongst what we say the best of the creme de la creme. Everything yeah. else doesn't really matter at that point. That's what's really bad about that. You're at the top of the tree looking down and you're not impressed with anything else. Because there no, is no, I'm
0: not. And that, that,
1: that's a problem now. Because that's my
0: wife. When I first started dating her, we would go places and they're nice places, but I wouldn't dance. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's the problem? You don't want to dance with me. You don't want to. So no, it's just, not that problem. That's not the problem. No, and and I mean, to this day, I hate the electric slide. <laughs> I can't oh, stand. Come on, we got. I yeah, know. but I mean, every every wedding, it's every wrong. whatever people are doing it. I hated that song, and most people don't know that was uh, Marcia Griffith did that song. You know, part of the i trees part of Bob Marley and the Whalers um, but it was it wasn't her best work <laughs> I must say <laughs> but it was one of the one of the works that made her the most money right. but you know there was just certain things because of my experience that I I just wasn't into doing and going to these places uh, that didn't have great sound systems. Uh, that didn't have DJs that really seemed like they cared one way or the other about, you know, what they were doing, I just, I'd had no time. Now, in 1979, this guy approached me uh, about playing records at a place called Harlem World on 116th Street, right? This was my first direct contact with hip-hop, right? Because this was a straight-up Hip hop crowd. So I was playing this music, and the guy came to me and said, "But you're not talking over the records." And you know David's aesthetic was hard and fast. You don't talk over music. You let the music talk. That's right. So just- I said, I, "I don't talk over records." What are you crazy? And he just he didn't realize at that point. Uh, and I didn't realize at that point that this was a type of music. I, I mean, I had uh, one time. I think I went to a place called the Hivelon Social Club on Jerome Avenue in Bronx, and the DJ there was cool DJ Herc, who was considered the godfather of hip hop. Even back then, he was very well known. Uh, and it's funny because I interviewed him years later. And I said to him, I mentioned the Heavol Social Club, and his eyes lit up like Christmas trees. Did you know about the Heavol? Yeah, I used to live on Burnside Avenue. So I know about the Heavol Social Club. So be that as it may, I I started out not really caring for rap that much. Okay? But as time went on, um, I got to understand it. I got to appreciate it. And the best of it, I really got to love. I got to be friendly with Chuck Lee from Public Enemy, who I interviewed about three months ago for my podcast. Uh, and one of the strangest things, uh, he and I were both in Edinburgh together. Not together. He was doing a show. I was just staying up there because I was digging into some family tree stuff. All right. Okay. And uh, my wife and daughter were there. <laughs> and they went out. And I called Chuck in his hotel. He said, "Why don't you come over, man? You you know, I'm I'm getting stuff together, and then we'll go have dinner." So I went over, and Lenny, you ever see like a a room full of wires and and speakers and all this stuff? And it's like the Mad Professor (laughs) has got all this stuff. Chuck was setting up a system whereby he could do a broadcast from anywhere on the planet. And all of this was like the, the beginning of it. So he and I went to dinner at a really great seafood restaurant in, in Edinburgh and came back to where we were staying. And I said, listen, I, I know my wife would love to meet you, but I know you got a sound check to do. So he, I put him in a cab and he went back to his hotel. My wife gets home. And I said, you never guess who was just here. Who? Chuck D. What? <laughs> You mean to tell me? I said, I tried to call you. But she was in a Starbucks or something. She was getting, you know, doing something. And I said, I, I tried to call you so you could come over and meet him, but she never answered the phone, And he had to go. And to this day, she she trashes me for that. You know? The other thing that happened in in London one time, uh, we were in London and Roy Ayers was playing at Ronnie Scott. Now, again, I know Roy for a while, right? So I found his phone number. He stand at a hotel not far from where we were staying. So I called him, but he was busy at the time. He said he called me back. So I hung up. My wife, the phone rings. My wife picks up the phone. Hello? Because she figures, I don't know anybody in England. Who the hell would be calling me in England? He asked for me, and she said, well, who is this? She said, Roy Ayers. Roy Ayers? Yes, Roy. <laughs> and we went to Ronnie Scott's that night, had a ball, had an absolute.
1: Great performer. Oh, my God. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, Just And, you know, the first time I saw him was in 1968 or 69 at the Woman Skating Rink in Central Park. He was part of Herbie Mann's band. Right. You remember Herbie?
1: We were starting to Atlantic in the 70s, everyone, the flute
0: player. Yeah. And uh, Sonny Shirak, a great guitarist, uh, and Roy, and I forgot who the drummer was, but they were just, they were smashing it.
1: Where Ayers was his percussion vibe player.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you get to to meet and talk to people. And, you know, particularly with musicians, I love to interview musicians, you know. Ron Carter, I forgot how many records he's on, but it's some it's like twenty <laughs> thousand records. Yeah. Uh, something like twenty thousand. You know, and he told me about how uh when he was young, Miles Davis approached him and asked him to if he wanted to play with Miles. He was with a different group. What and is it Ron what is said it uh you have to, you know, uh you have to get whoever it was. It might have been Blakey, somebody, Art Blakey, one of those groups. Says so you got to get permission from him for me to go with you. And Miles asked, and he never did it. But he actually went and got permission for Ron Carter to go. And he gave me. Uh, Ron Carter did uh, a CD called the Brandenburg Concerto, which was actually extraordinary classical music with his jazz bass. And I was, just, I was absolutely floored. He signed, signed the CD and everything. Was <laughs> another high point, you know. Um, but through all of that, my grounding was still the loft and the garage. even I mean, the garage has been closed since 87 for God's sake, 30-something years. But my grounding was still in that aesthetic. I can still hear that pounding going up the ramp. <laughs> You know what I'm saying. That's
1: the sad part of it all. The benchmark in your mind, and many others still share the same benchmark. Yeah. Every club I played in, every club I went to, go hear others play. We always say the same thing. It's very good, but does not hold Canter to the Paradise Garage. To the Paradise Garage. Just like, no. like that, we would say all the time. It sounds great. It's not that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And I mean, I a lot know. of Danny awesome. equipment-
0: Clifford. Is I can't say enough about Danny. Danny's an extraordinary DJ, and he's been around forever. Great DJ. Great DJ. He was uh, a member of the pool, you know, the New York pool, and then for the record, further down the road. So he's been around for like 45 years. Um, And, you know, he's one of those guys. I He is not hypercritical of, quote, today's DJs. But, you know, he doesn't think, I think in some cases, enough of them uh, pay attention to their craft. And some, let me tell you something, Link. some of these guys are fabulously wealthy. Um, Fat Boy Slim lives in Hove, which is the next town over from here. That guy's worth $30 million.
1: Yeah, but also don't forget the records he's produced that became massive hits. Oh, and yeah. After, yeah. That, after that, the DJing that follows because of that. And I've always said, you don't have to be good you have the right setup and the right people around you. Yeah, yeah. Social media, That's, you know, social media driven business. It's not the same like it was back in the day, where you made it through sweat equity. We all had oh, yeah. to work hard. You know, everybody, even Larry, to get that spot worked his behind he off. He worked
0: his ass off, and you know who's playing here <clears throat> on uh Friday, the day after tomorrow, Carl Cox. Yeah, I mean, it's like. Larry in England, <laughs> he's, right. he's really, and again, he's another one produced, uh, got involved in a lot of different forms, not just DJing. But he's doing a gig here, and, and people have been lined up buying his stuff since Tuesday, right. you know, buying tickets. As a matter of fact, it, he's been sold out now. um, but it's like
1: on the pier. I think everyone is sprighton on the pier. Correct? He's going to be doing it outside. They're doing it on the pier, if I remember correctly. It's not
0: going to be on the pier, but it's going to be right next to the pier. But it outside. is outside.
1: Yeah, right. It's outside.
0: Yeah, it's an outside. It's um. There's a club that's sponsoring it, but they're putting it out on the beach because that's the safest way. Most yeah, people. people. Yeah, with the number of people that are going to be there, uh because they're saying they're expecting like 4 or 5,000 people. So, you know, you, you got to in, in this day and age, you got to be careful. You know, <laughs> you really do. Uh it's it's sad in a way because uh I can't imagine what it would have been like to have gone to the garage or gone to the loft and then be told for 18 months you can't go. Because the spaces are closed. You know, if you're in your early mid-20s and had but, that happen to you, I can't but, imagine what that's like.
1: But whoever dreamed that this would even have happened, we never thought this was so far mm-hmm. from our minds. I we know lockdown like this. Come on. At the time when we were pre-COVID, <laughs> we were never thinking that there was ever a possibility that we would ever have a, a complete lockdown.
0: You're absolutely right. But I think a a lot of people, at least over here, don't take into account the fact that this has been 18 months that these kids will never get back. Now, I may not think that DJs are the greatest. I may not like their choices in music all the time. But this is their time. It's not mine. You know what I mean? Hey, I can't get it back. I can't And they can't get it back. And when I think of, of my time, when I was in my early 20s, and to be told for 18 months, well, no more garage, no more loft, no more this, no more that. And over here, unfortunately, they tend to vilify kids just because they're kids. Uh, I'd be ready to strangle somebody. I really would. Um, because it's, it's just so incredibly unfair and now, you know, kids are, are, are they, they've gotten what they call, I've got my freedom back. Um, and even then, you know, people are all jumping, you know, well, these kids, do you not know, they don't know what they're doing. They're spreading, there's a possibility of spreader. They had a, a race, a Formula One race over here, 140,000 people. And they're not all
1: kids. Give yeah, so us the FIFA Cup. The fight is going on. Those things, 50 60,000 people. I said they open those things up, but yet a club scene closed. What the hell's going on? I hope to God it's not one of these exercises, everyone in the UK, who's watching where they say, okay, so I gave everyone a chance to stretch their arms out, and we're shutting down again, because they could shut down any moment's notice. You never know.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's funny because the prime minister over here swore up and down when they first put out this roadmap that once you got to the end of the roadmap, that was it. There was not going to be any more lockdowns, no more this, no more that, no more anything. And little by little, they had to start doing some incremental backtracking. Remember that the July 19th was not the first date for the end of all this. Excuse me. It was June 21st. Right. But they stretched it out because they wanted to make sure more people got the vaccine. So now it's July 19th, and he's hedging his bets. He's saying we don't want to have to go back into another lockdown. But if the numbers aren't right, it's going to be a problem. You know? Uh, and, I, I mean, again, I feel for people. I'll tell you who I really feel for. I feel for the NHS people, the National Health Service people over here. These people have been working their fingers to the bone. I don't know how many of them, at least a 100, maybe more, caught COVID and died during the earlier part of the pandemic. People who were working to save other lives lost theirs. And, you know, I, I always believe that you have to pay close attention. And, you know, they had this whole clap for carers thing here, where every Thursday people come out and applaud and whatever. That's lovely. How about you give them some money? (laughs) Okay. Because they're talking about a 1% wage increase. That's ridiculous for people who put their lives on the line the way these people did. You know, Um, but look, I'm glad to hear because I know, you know, uh, Colleen Murphy, right?
1: Yes. Cosmo, as everybody knows. DJ Cosmo, everyone.
0: DJ Cosmo. Great lady. She was mentored by David.
1: She used to be on um, uh, NYU Station New York. I did her show a couple of times. Yeah, she
0: used to be on WNYU.
1: Great radio radio host. She's a wonderful. Yeah, and she
0: does uh, um, classic album Sundays. And Tuesday morning, she does this thing called Balearic Breakfast. She plays beautiful stuff, just plays extraordinary stuff. But, you know, I feel for her because this is her livelihood. Like all
1: of us, brother. (laughs)
0: the same boat. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's her. Her husband is also a promoter. He does reggae. And they've had no, I mean, they've gotten some grants. But other than that, they've had no steady source of income for 18 months. 18 months. Now, you know, it's true, too, that in the States, it's just as bad. You know, people are out here scuffling, trying to get, you know, trying to get work. I got to ask you, though, Lenny, because you play. On a regular basis. And I don't want to turn this around to end up doing, you know, interviewing you, but I've always been curious um, because in talking to Joey, he's always said to me that uh, the crowd that goes to the reunion parties doesn't really want to hear new stuff. They want to hear the stuff that they're familiar with. They want to hear the doctor loves. They want to hear, girl, you need to change your mind. They want to hear Love Hangover. They want to hear these kinds of iconic pieces of music, rude movements, that kind of stuff. And I'm wondering, do do the people that you play for appreciate and get into new music? Because I'll tell you, we were were talking earlier about how Larry used to play new music until it was coming out of his crowd's ears if he really liked a piece of music. And I'm wondering whether at this point, uh, this jockey's like yourself, end up feeling like you really have to play the old stuff, because
1: they won't respond to the new stuff. It depends on the age group. Let's start like that. So, for example, if there's certain parties I'm playing that have the mixture of garage, loft, shelter, Timmy's crowd, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crowd, the shelter and those area, all those clubs that came, because I come from that same group, okay? Yeah. Uh, they're fickle. You got to be careful how far you can take them. You find yourself playing records that they feel familiarized with. They're within the same. What we're noticing is a lot of the contingency groups like Afro House here in New York area. They mm-hmm. like the Afro House because it's something they're comfortable with. But what I like to do personally is I like to do changes, kind of like the way Larry and them all did. I like to yeah. make changes to the night as drastically and as quickly as I can because I don't like to do the same mundane sound for hours.
0: Yeah, because yeah.
1: I get bored and I don't want my crowd to get bored. You know what I'm saying? So I can understand playing some of the classics that we all know. Mm-hmm. If I was in the crowd at the garage Union party, I would want to hear some of the more obscure stuff that he played as well. But yeah. And they,
0: they, they do that. But I mean, Joey yeah, and David they, have said to me, they on, just don't, you know, they don't react.
1: They stay on the big records a lot. And it's just cool. And look, they're not playing just for us. They're playing for people that once a year come to get a dance. And they want to be reminded of those records. Because I have my core friends that that's what they talk about. Those records, Date With The Rain, all the big ones that you just mentioned in your conversation. Yeah. And we have those moments where we laugh about those records because we all remember hearing them there. And hearing these DJs, and not just Larry, Kenny Carpenter, yes, Tony Humphreys, Every you know, Tony Humphreys, another another one that, again, for the Jersey scene coming from Brooklyn, and after T Scott and T Scott, we well, did it better days, and Bruce Forrest, and yeah, all yeah, the people that pushed the scene to the house music scene. Thankfully, and where you are now, the UK grabbing that scene from us. From Chicago, New York, and taking it further. Putting
0: their own stamp it. on it. They put absolutely it. have put their own stamp on it.
1: Taking it from us as DJs and bringing us there, importing us, and making superstar DJs out of everybody. Yeah, yeah. There was no such thing in the back in that time of the superstar no. DJ. Those were the house DJ, the home DJ. Larry Levan was not famous, everybody. The garage was famous. Then Larry became famous. Then the garage got bigger. And Larry's fame became bigger. And yeah, that's yeah. And we always talk about this. There was nobody running around New York going, Did you go hear Larry Levan? No, they would say, I went to the garage. Or I, yeah. I went to the studio. I never mentioned Richie Kazar. They never mentioned that. They just said studio. I went to the studio yeah. I think- <clears throat>
0: Richie was a gifted DJ too. I mean he could play. He right. was, he so was so but see he was constricted by who that crowd was. That crowd expected to hear certain certain music. I mean that's why Nikki played there uh just as it first opened but Nikki didn't last because Nikki played what he felt. And that crowd wasn't feeling
1: what Nikki was playing at the time. So let me ask you the question Mr. Riley. And I see this question come up on the on the on the garage sites and the studio sites, they say which club was better, studio or garage.
0: Oh, that's no contest. There's no contest now.
1: You don't put them in the same contest. That's the problem because they're two different things.
0: For yeah, I, I mean, I uh, didn't go to Studio Fifty Four that that often. Okay, a lot of people don't know that one of the people that was the driving force behind Studio Fifty Four was also one of the original group of women that hung out at the loft and took parts of the loft concept and ran to Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager, who at the time were running a club in Queens called the Enchanted Garden, and said, look, this is how you ought to do this. That's why I said David could have retired in 1980, <laughs> a multi-millionaire if he actually wanted to, because he never charged for memberships. Studio 54 charged for memberships and made millionaires out of these guys. And that's where, they were, they were. you know, David had some hard and fast principles about that sort of thing. But for me, um, Studio 54 was glitz. And the, a couple of times I went, I got the distinct impression that a lot of people who were on the dance floor felt that the fact they got in. Made them special. And I hated that. I really did. These, these were not special people. They were people who on a particular night. Steve Rubell allowed into his space. I didn't make them special.
1: <coughs>
0: and they didn't have. What I would call a communal aesthetic. About the space. They just didn't. They, they were not. About. They. You know, you could say they were hedonistic or whatever, you know, Bianca Jagger riding in on a horse or whatever, however you want to look at it. But there was no group feeling about Studio 54. And there was a group feeling about the garage. There was a group feeling about the loft. There was a group feeling about the gallery. These were places, and and Zanzibar out in Jersey, and, you know, Better Days, all these people, all these spaces had a communal aesthetic that anybody who went there more than once understood and plugged into. It wasn't just that she stood on the sideline and, and thought like, you know, oh, well, this is nice. Everybody kind of gravitated. One thing I, I found very interesting, and it was kind of like a dividing line for me. When I used to go to the, the Justines and Leviticus and places like that. There was always a formalized structure for the dancing. You went, you asked a woman to dance. She danced with you one or two songs. You went back, and then you went, you know, you go around and maybe you start talking to somebody. Where it was highly structured, without necessarily, I mean, there was no rule book, but it was highly structured. And the thing that struck me the first time I went to the loft was that there was none of that going on. If you wanted to dance, you just started dancing. You didn't have to ask anybody. Uh, if you wanted to dance with somebody, you danced relatively close without you know being intrusive. But it, it wasn't about that formal thing
1: right. that
0: had been a part of club life during the early time that I used to go out. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things I found so liberating about the law. Was that there weren't those kinds of rules, there weren't those kinds of structures. And the same was true at the garage. You know, I mean, I remember uh, staying there till it, you know, till just about closing time. And Larry would play Oh Mary Don't You Weep by Aretha Franklin, a classic piece of music. And folks that were there and knew each other would lock arms. And rock back and forth to that song. And it was it was something absolutely special. But it was also something like, you you, you know when they, they say you kind of had to be there to understand what...
1: I say it all the time. You weren't there, you don't get it. You don't understand what it means.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that was like some of the most emotional times. David, the same thing. David would play uh, Ozo. And then he would play uh, Bohannon's Have a Good Day and stuff like that. And people reacted to that. And then, you know, you'd know, you be going out, and the loft never had spots. So you never knew, unless you wore a watch, actually what time it was. So you would walk out of there, and you didn't know if it was like 5 o'clock in the morning or 1 o'clock the next afternoon. Really, your conception of time had shifted. But, you know... you. If you were hungry, you know, and, and that was another scene. The pink teacup used to be an amazing place because so many loft heads, so many garage heads, and Larry, and occasionally David. David didn't used to go there that often, but Larry used to go. There used to be bunches of people that were part of Larry's set that used to go to the pink teacup for breakfast, you know, and it was it was an amazing, amazing thing. There was another place uptown who's, I, I remember because they had the surliest waitresses in New York and I took Joey up there one time and <laughs> Joey didn't think they were moving fast enough and he started banging his silverware on the table I said, Joey, you're going to get us killed up here because those those ladies did not play that what was the name of that place <laughs> you know what happened? you know when you get old you kind of forget stuff. And then the minute you, you, you know, you're talking you're talking love, and then it comes back later. What soul food? No, it was, uh, so I can see the place too. That's the amazing thing. Um, well the other, you know, pink teacup didn't play either. You didn't, you know, you didn't go in there and trifle with those, with that wait staff cause they, they cut you. Get, <laughs> you get, get
1: you. the ass out of there. Get uh, up. Get there. Yeah.
0: What? Go on, go eat someplace else then. Get up, yeah. Get, get up. Go ahead. But I mean see the thing about the Pink Teacup was uh, they had uptown food, downtown. They had salmon cakes and they had grits and they had that kind of stuff. Most restaurants in below 96th Street in Manhattan didn't have those kinds of things. And one of the things I find interesting now is that as these clubs have spread out into Brooklyn. I have to figure there's like a different aesthetic there because there's all this, once it's a restaurant out here. And you know, you go.
1: But it's not the same like Manhattan with the all night feeling all night. Really? Yeah, it's different. It's it? not the
0: same. It's not I don't know. I've only eaten in a Brooklyn restaurant once on the night I went to a club. Me, Joey, and a couple of other people went to a restaurant out there. The food was good. But no, it, it wasn't that communal thing, I guess. Wait, wait,
1: wait. It's not like going to WoHop at 6 a.m. in a- <laughs> 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 Wait, We just finished well, one. let to go to WoHop.
0: Yep. Okay.
1: Everybody, let's go to WoHop. Let's right. go to now, WoHop. Yep. And Eat and set up. 6
0: a.m. Was, you know, that was uh, the, the communal thing. We would call each other. We'd have this phone chain. And, you know, Judy used to start it a lot. Say, oh, come on, why, why don't we all get together? And we'll go eat wherever. There was, there used to be a really nice Italian restaurant over by Vinceletti's house off, off of I think 10th Street off of 2nd Avenue. And yeah. we were like, come on, let's go eat over there. We'll call, I'll call Vince and we'll you know we get a table and we'll all eat there. Or we'll all eat there was a legendary restaurant that I used to absolutely love called Mary's in the village. Mm-hmm. It was like a, a a brownstone kind of a thing. And you walk in the door, you walk up a flight of stairs, and these beautiful like eight, 19th century rooms. Uh, and, and, you know, you would go to these places and she took it. Do you ever go to Sammy's Romania?
1: No, I, but I know about it. I, I never, I never.
0: We went there once for Judy's birthday. <laughs> you know, um, it, We would go all over the place back then. We would just, you know, if people had a mind to do something, we you do it. You just do it. Yeah, you just do it. Joey and I, one time when I was living in Washington Heights, he came by my house at like 10 o'clock at night and we biked from washington heights down to the battery hung out down in the battery met judy down there and then went to the loft you know and and you know david let us park our bikes in the space between buildings and we just hung out there all night and people don't understand i don't think because there's not although I heard, I don't know if it's still going on, but I heard that there were some people who obviously knew nothing about the law, but were doing kind of like house party sorts of things. And there was one that excuse me, apparently got to be very popular. I can't remember the name of it now, but it was this guy and he would have like 20, 25, 30 people in his apartment. Uh. Dancing sometimes until seven eight o'clock in the morning. What happened? I think was that his neighbors eventually complained, and I think they ran him out of there. Because you, get... you can't New do York now is so gentrified. I'm not sure you can get away with walking down the street. You
1: know, ten thirty, in... they're already shutting you, trying to shut you down. Forget about seven eight, 8 seven eight a.m. That's like craziness.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, and I don't think uh, uh, that thing is, and again, you know, I've been to some of these parties. Like I I went to uh, uh, what is it now and then, and there were some younger people there. It wasn't all people, you know, my age. God help me, I'm past the point of doing these sorts of things, but there were uh, younger people who were into the music, who were into the into the vibe, and now and then has a. It kind of reminded me, particularly the outdoor part, kinda reminded me of the loft a little bit.
1: Mm.
0: You know, because it was that sort of, you know, <coughs> everybody get together, dance, enjoy yourself. Uh, and you know, they had what was sodas, juices or whatever. And everybody had and see this is important, Lenny. Everybody had respect for everybody else's space. True. And, you know, as crowded as the loft was, as crowded as the garage was, people always had
1: respect
0: for your space. I can remember times the garage would have a full dance floor and I could walk across that dance floor and not hit anybody, not run into anybody. Had to do a little zigging and zagging. But it was the idea that it was a scene for people and everybody took. I thought, care not to, you know, not to knock into other people. And, and those are just little small things. You know what I mean? Um, but the things I remember, because they contributed to what I felt was, I guess, a warmth I felt about these spaces. And why, uh, even now, I like you know, you can't compare these places anymore. I went there was a place I went to though, uh an Asian guy had was it in Queens? Um uh, God Lenny, I'm so bad with names anymore.
1: He doesn't really, he doesn't uh, he does it in a love space, right? Yeah, yeah. I nice. can't it's a nice. very nice spot. Very nice spot. Yeah, and then he's got clips on. He's yeah. patented his space after date. It's a, it's it's patent after loft. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the loft favorite. doesn't do that many did parties. Did you feel like you were at the loft when you went to this guy's party? That the Asian I can't remember the name of the <laughs> state. You know, I did partly
0: because Doug Sherman was playing that night. And Doug will always be associating with the Loft. And the music was so fine tuned. It wasn't pun the bass wasn't punchy. It was loft like, you know, and uh, obviously, he even had the little flanges that David built into the side of the clip shorns to let the sound travel further. He had even copied that from the law.
1: There you go, you
0: know. And I mean, it's it's like now, what,
1: uh, well, 50 years almost, 50 I mean, it is. They had a 50th anniversary party just before the first lockdown. He's 70, when he started, he. Technically started, started in 1970. Right, so we have now at 52, because of the 53rd year. Yeah, a long time.
0: Yeah, it's a long time. It's, it's a, it outlived him. Yeah. You know, pretty much. Yeah, um, and you know, but there's a, a core group of people, uh, and they know who they are. Uh, <laughs> who keep that thing going. You know, Elise and Doug and Soraya. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to leave somebody out, and they're going to hate my guts for it. Um, Donna, all of these people who've been there for a really long stretch. Uh, Loft Kid Lewis, who started out like three, four years old, going to the law. You know, and I took my daughter to one of the parties one few years ago. He was like maybe I think she was in college. I took her there, and you know. Uh, it's difficult sometimes to realize that not everybody wants to go someplace with their dad. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's, 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 it's it's a little off-putting. It's
1: like when I took my daughter to the anniversary thing outside the Red Bull thing on the street. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The garage
0: anniversary thing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was extraordinary.
1: Oh, that she was- told me act like a kid, going crazy seeing people. You know, you're not thinking your kid is with you no more.
0: <laughs> exactly. You're not even paying any attention. Not, I, mean, I, brought, I brought my daughter to the loft. Now, I had brought her there when she was really small, and I know she didn't remember it then. But I brought her there, and, you know, we would dance. And I said to her, look, if, if you're not comfortable, if you're not happy, we'll leave right away. We stayed for a good stretch. And when we left, she turned to me and said, Dad, I have never been in a place as diverse as that, ever. And I said, well, that's, that's the law. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose. David used to always say, if you can get people from different backgrounds, different incomes, uh, different skin colors to come together around music, that's social progress. And he was absolutely right. It's still true today.
1: correct. Works today.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he never strayed. Never. Even when, and, and believe me, I never really talked money with him. But there were people who talked to him over and over and over again and told him, you can make so much more money than you're making now if you do this. If you tweak that. If you charge for membership, if you do this, that, and the other, and he would never do it. You know, he would never, ever, because he had a set of principles. Now, I will say that there are times that his principles used to drive people nuts. (laughs) They used to get upset about some of David's principles, but he never, ever varied from them. His thing was um, he charged a certain amount at the door because he didn't want anybody to have to pass money for anything once they got inside. And as far as he was concerned, if you were passing money inside the law, if you were dealing drugs, and you had to go anywhere. And people never, ever abused that. He used to do these special events. Uh, has anybody ever told you about the funny Easter Bunny? No. That was Easter time, he would dress up Somebody in a a bunny costume and they would be hopping around the party, giving out tabs of acid to people. (laughs) That was how David did. He also, and I went with him to do this. That's why I know I saw this with my own two eyes. He went one time around Christmas to uh, the lot that's next to the basketball courts on 6th Avenue and 3rd Street.
1: I know exactly. Yes, I know exactly. Yeah.
0: He got somebody to come over there with a pickup truck and he bought every tree in that lot, every last one of them, took them back to the loft and hung them upside down. (laughs) And they stayed there till mid-February. That's how David functioned. You know, he functioned on impulse and so much of what he did was so wonderful, which is why it still exists today.
1: And on that note, you have now have just impressed everyone and taught everyone a lesson. <laughs> yeah. I just hope people didn't get bored. Go. I let you go. So now, what are you doing today? Are you still on BBC Radio Six? Are you? What's, you know, what's
0: I do? I do occasional stuff. I do stuff for Radio Sussex. I do stuff occasionally for Five Live. Uh, but I'm retired, man. I don't feel like I got to do anything. I do my oh, podcast.
1: I'm, I'm asking, in other words, what do you, how do you, okay. So you're retired. How do you keep busy when you want to be busy? That's I should
0: said. I do. I do a podcast every week. It's they called talk- The Intersection. And, you know, if people want to check it out, it's available on all kinds of platforms. It's available on Progressive Voices. It's called The Intersection of Politics and Culture. It's mainly politics. But I'm thinking this week I may talk to a couple of, uh, music people, about how nightlife is coming out of lockdown and how it's going to change. Because I think that's important for people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely, brother. You're incredible. Wow, what a great, 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 great time I had.
0: Listen, man, I I really
1: appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you're plethora. Like I told in the beginning of the show, I said, a plethora of info. Because (laughs) (laughs) here's the thing, everyone. He can't make this up. You know why? He saw it. He lived it. You can only yeah. say what you experience. You can't make up. As so I tell everyone, this is why it's called True House Stories. These are things that we're talking about because they come from the inner gut and our mind. Because we were there. We experienced it. We seen it. We lived it. Touched it. Learned it. And changed our lives drastically.
0: Drastically. And and for the better. I mean, let's be real. It changed our lives for the better it gave me an appreciation of all different types of music. I still listen to music for, for airports. Brian Eno, now 40-something years later. And that was all David. That was all wow. on the and hey. uh, one really quick story. Go ahead. <clears throat> we were in London for a wedding. And we were in this uh, really beautiful atrium of this restaurant. And it was like you know, four or five stories up. And, you know, we were eating on the ground floor and there was music playing, right? Somebody was playing a piano. And I said to my wife, that sounds like, that doesn't sound like a, a a recorded piano. That sounds like somebody's playing live. So I called the waitress over. I said, is that is somebody actually playing the piano? She said, oh yeah, there's a pianist on the third floor. And I said, thank you, David, <laughs> because that's, that's how I got to realize that sound.
1: See? See that? You learn. Yeah. And I'll stay with you for, for eternity till we're all gone.
0: And yeah. also,
1: you're teaching everyone right now what he taught you. I try. I try. I try to start,
0: share information.
1: Sharing is caring, as I always say. And thank you, Mr. Mark Riley. Well, thank you, Lenny. Keep going, brother, and we'll try. We'll keep making sure we check in with you from time to time, make sure you're all right. But Thank I'll you. when I come to Brighton, I will see you for sure. Yeah, please, I will see you.
0: Absolutely. I want
1: to ask also next week. Give me one second, Mister Riley. Of course, Alison Limerick, where love lives, is coming. Oh wow, a UK artist. is going to come and tell us her story, right here in True House Stories. I worked with her. You all know her. She is a jewel of the UK. She will be coming on next week. Same bat time. Same (laughs) Same bat time. (laughs) 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 On that note, everyone, I want to say a happy good night. And when you party, please be careful because we still got to make it till tomorrow. So so, I hope to see you all. What Frankie used to say. I hope to live to 99 and one extra day or one less day. So I minus,
0: uh, 100 but minus a day. So I don't know the good people like you have passed away.
1: That's it, baby. And it just came from Mr. Ryan, who used to be a bill as, as well. He knows it all too well. Thank you, everyone. Good night. See you all next week. All right. You t-